Welcome to the November 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. You know, this year, everyone's talking about the big 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower. But have you ever wondered if you are related to some of those who made the voyage? Chris Child from the New England Historic Genealogical Society is here to help you find out. And then Diane Southard's going to be here to help you find out why you might be seeing some unexpected results in your DNA matches. And every month we bring you a terrific website for your genealogy research. This month is no exception. We are going to be exploring ohiomemory.org with the site's digital services manager, Jenny Solomon. And then we'll wrap things up over at the offices of Family Tree Magazine, where digital editor Courtney Henderson has the perfect collection of gifts for the genealogists on your gift-giving list. But first, let's hear about your genealogical journeys, and we'll do that in Tree Talk. Well, here in the Tree Talk segment, I've got an email from Charlene Jasm, who writes, Go back to your ancestors' old neighborhood and get family stories from neighbors. I drove back to my grandmother's old neighborhood one nice sunny morning and waited for the mailman. I explained a bit of my family's story and where my grandmother lived. Then I asked him, Are there any older folks in the neighborhood who might remember my grandmother? That simple question led me right up to the front steps of an elderly widow's house. She remembered my grandmother and had had a very neighborly acquaintance with her. She could even remember my other family members whom my grandmother had talked to her about over the back fence. Another time, a neighbor of another ancestor told me a story about my aunt and uncle as children. Once, they had stolen a pie Grandma had put in the window to cool and gobbled it all up. The neighbor also told me which one of them had the nerve to climb up to the top of the local water tower next door to their house. Why such insignificant genealogical facts? Well, do you want your family story to be nothing but a recitation of dates and names like a son, Gustav Frederick, was born Wednesday, February 23, 1905 in Morris, Minnesota? No wonder some family stories are so deathly boring. To me, these little anecdotes are what really bring my genealogy research to life. Well said, Charlene. And uh, if you have something to say about genealogy or the research that you're doing, reach out to us. Email us at familytree at yankeepub.com. And we just might share it here on the podcast. That's familytree at yankeepub.com. According to the General Society of Mayflower Descendants, an estimated 35 million people worldwide are believed to be descended from the passengers of the Mayflower, which arrived in New England in November 1620. In an article called Pilgrim's Pride, which appears in the November-December 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine, Chris Child of the New England Historic Genealogical Society helps us celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower's Landing and discover how our family lines might even connect 
to that famous voyage. And here to talk more about it is Chris Child. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hello. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. I think this is our first time having you on the show. And uh, this is a great article and very timely. That number of 35 million descendants is pretty amazing considering that they all trace back to only about 50 passengers. And you said in the magazine, that really is just about 26 recognized families. Can you give us a little bit of uh, historical context around who these people are that we're talking about? Sure. So, I mean, there were about 102 passengers on the voyage, although basically half died the first winter. Some of those that died the first winter did have children. But largely, we're talking about the, a congregation initially based in Leiden, as well as some people who joined in England. The bulk of the descendants of the Mayflower passengers go through the initial Plymouth settlement. There also are some descendants through passengers who remained through their children who remained in England or in, in Leiden, Holland, as well, but they largely it starts out in southeastern Massachusetts in Plymouth Colony, and then descendants just keep going and going from there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I know that you have in this article lots of different strategies for how to go about researching them, researching how your family connects. How would our listeners go about kind of identifying the possible Mayflower families that they might have in their family tree? Sure. Well, excluding the what I would call the various outliers, these descents that are exclusively in Leiden or in England, largely what I would recommend is tracing your ancestry back to ancestors that are in the United States prior to the American Revolution. Largely, you'd be focusing on ancestors in New England or the Northeast in general. Um, there are sort of certain geographical hotspots where Mayflower descendants tended to live. Of course, you have Plymouth, Barnstable counties in southeastern Massachusetts, but you had a lot of Mayflower descendants who ended up in Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, and even New Jersey. And there's even some that end up in Virginia. So there's not, there's some areas that are uh, a little less concentrated with Mayflower descendants and then some that are a little um, more heavy. But basically, you'd get two ancestors probably around the time of the Revolutionary War. And there are a few databases that we've made on AmericanAncestors.org that have kind of help you to see if you might have a recognized Mayflower line. Um, so some of these are um, the General Society of Mayflower Descendants publishes the what we call the Silver Books, which are Mayflower families through five generations, which that's five generations of Mayflower descendants, which largely goes to around the time of the Revolutionary War. So we've indexed that on our website. So that's a great way to sort of um, see if, if your line might tie in once you get back about 200 years. Yeah, it's terrific. They have those compiled histories and um, it's kind of like people who would like to join the, the DAR, you know, it's that trick of getting yourself far enough back that you can tap into a lot of the work that's already done. So it sounds like that's our first task is just to get as far back as we can, hopefully into that time frame. You mentioned several resources and, and the Silver Books is one of them. Talk a little bit more about some of the other kinds of resources and let's start with some of the ones we might be able to tap into from home to help us make those connections? Sure. So, I mean, largely when you're going back to the time of the Revolutionary War, uh, you'll be using uh, census, vital records, what might be available from home, either whether it's on Ancestry.com, American Ancestors, or Family Search. And then 
the database I was talking about, the Silver Books, well, that's available in libraries. Um, we've made a database of just the fifth generation of those books on American ancestors. Um, then the other thing that we've also done is we're launching this new database called American Ancestries, which is going to be taking all applications of people who have joined the Mayflower Society and have been approved. And it's makes, basically making trees of all deceased individuals who are on the application. So it doesn't have any living individuals, but for, as an example that I mentioned in the article, my own line, which was accepted 10 years ago, myself and my parents don't appear in there, but my grandparents do. And from there, you could see the line. So you might have had a second or third cousin who might have joined the Mayflower Society. You might not have any idea about that. So that can be a major um, time saver. And, uh, and the database also mentions all those citations that were included on, on the application. There's also a lot of other um, journals that might have compiled articles on families. So that journal that I edit is the Mayflower Descendant, but there's also um, the American Genealogist, the New England Historical and Genealogical uh, Register, and the Genealogist, to name just a few that often delve into Mayflower-specific genealogy. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, you mentioned American Ancestors, and AmericanAncestors.org is the website of the New England Historical and Genealogical Society. So talk to us a little bit about that, what other things people can find there. And of course, you've got the big anniversary coming up. So what have you got planned over at the website? Sure. So, I mean, we've been involved in 400th anniversary commemorations since for the last several years. Obviously, a lot of what we had planned got kind of canceled, postponed, or gone digital um, in light of everything that resulted. But the two databases that I was referring to, American Ancestries and the fifth generation database, those were some of the things that came out. Um, besides those Mayflower-specific journals, I mean, our website, American Ancestors, has lots of other databases, other genealogical journals online, vital records for New England and, and elsewhere across the country and other parts of the world. Uh, we've done a lot of partnerships with Family Search that have made some of their databases available on our, on our search engine as well. So you can find a lot from our website, um, not just Mayflower, but New England and elsewhere in general. So. Wonderful. Now, some of that uh, is available for free. And then you also have a subscription there as well? Yes, I believe the annual subscription for all of our databases, I believe is $99 a year. I could be um, incorrect about that, but I, I believe that's, that's the amount um, to get online. And that would also include the um, the register, the New England Historical Genealogical Register, which we publish four times a year, and then American Ancestors Magazine, which we publish four times a year. Um, the Mayflower Descendant Journal is a separate magazine, separate journal that comes out twice a year um, for an additional cost. What kinds of things are covered in that? That sounds really interesting. Sure. So just to give some background on the journal, the Mayflower Descendant began in the 1890s. It was a publication of the Massachusetts Society of Mayflower Descendants. It was started by George Bowman, who kind of is the big pioneer in Mayflower genealogy for that era. Um, really got a lot of things going with making Mayflower scholarship very serious and trying to find new discoveries on what might be known on the passengers. So it has, from that period of time, and keep published it till the 1930s, and then it got revived again in the 1980s, and we've been publishing it since uh, 2016. Um, but it includes genealogical summaries, not just on Mayflower families, but other families that sort of intermarry um, within Mayflower families or might be confused with Mayflower families. So 
we've had articles in the journal on the non Mayflower um, Bradfords or the non Mayflower Aldens, the other families with the same surnames that aren't the Mayflower family, because you might just assume that has to be the Mayflower passengers. Um, but we've also um, done a lot of record ab- abstracts, um, early Massachusetts records, records back in England, records back in the Netherlands, um, and then a lot of new discoveries. Um, English origins of passengers have been discovered. And what I would call a lot of just problem analysis, where revisiting some old problems that have been either dismissed in the past and there's new evidence, or just giving a new argument to some long going problems in, in Mayflower scholarship. Yeah, there's always something new to learn, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> we, we always keep our eyes and ears open and wonderful that, as you mentioned, so many of the materials that you work with have all the source citations so people can still dig into it even further. And of course, they can dig into this article. It's Pilgrim's Pride, celebrating the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower's landing by discovering your family lines that connect to the famous voyage. And you've been listening to Chris Child from the New England Historical and Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Chris, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sometimes your DNA matches don't quite match what you expected. Maybe you and your mom don't have as many DNA matches as you expected to see, or you can't find a particular surname among your matches. Well, in this month's DNA Deconstructed segment, your DNA guide, Diane Southard, is here to break down why this might be the case and what to do if a relative isn't actually related to you like you thought they were. Welcome back to the show, Diane. Thank you, Lisa. You've asked such a good question. I think once we've convinced people that they do have a match list, which some people honestly still don't realize they have one, and then it's it's the big, difficult task of trying to explain all of those people that we see. Exactly. And I know that you've been fielding some questions over at Family Tree Magazine online. And there was a recent article, DNA Q&A, How to Understand Missing or Unexpected Matches. And I'd love to start off with one of the questions that you handled in that article. Uh, This one says, my mom and I have both tested with Ancestry DNA. Should she be a shared match for all my matches from her side of the family? Because I received all that DNA, because I received all that DNA from her. I have hundreds of matches and she and I share only 12 of them. I thought things would be more equal between the two sides of the family. What do you say about that, Diane? Right. Now, this was a really interesting question. And the first thing I want to say is, oh, let me take a look at this. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I think there's probably more layers here than than what the reader is able to see themselves. And that's part of the problem here is that, you know, everyone's doing their best to look at the tools and figure things out. But honestly, sometimes it just takes someone who's had a little bit more experience to take a look. So number one, if this is really the case, um, the first thing is that sometimes you just won't have as many matches from one branch of the family as you might expect. And if you think about it, it it makes sense because you can look at your family history, your paper research, and you can see, oh, yeah, well, this great-great-grandfather had 10 kids, and then they all had 10 kids. And, you know, you've got these huge, huge families. Of course, you're going to see more descendants from that family in your DNA test results. And the one who had five kids but only four 
uh, actually lived to adulthood and of those four, only one actually got married and had kids. Well, yeah, you're you're probably not going to see as many matches from that line. So we can see this, you know, trend in our paper research, too. This isn't just in genetics. And, and there's a big difference between matches and then the segments that you share, right? I mean, like you said, the volume is different when it comes to the number of people. Right, for sure. And so that's another thing is that a lot of uh, people are getting their DNA test and they're here in the United States, for example. But here in the United States, uh, a lot of people are taking DNA tests to find out where they came from originally, right across the pond. And that's because your line has been here for generations and you've lost track of all of that. But there's many more people who either live outside of the United States or who are recently immigrated to the United States, and their lines jump across the pond just in the last generation or two. And just because of the nature of our DNA testing databases at this point, most of the people who've tested are in the United States. And so if you have an immigrant ancestor very recently in your family tree, all of, all of their ancestors, I guess, descendants are still in the home country and they haven't taken a DNA test. So you're probably not going to see matches from that line as well. well that's a good reminder. You can't match somebody who hasn't tested. At least not directly, right? right? It does. It seems simple, but it it is actually a really good explanation for some of the experiences that we're having in our DNA match lists. In the article, you've talked about something called ghost matches. What do you mean by that? Well, I know that a lot of people have really taken a hold of this fun, let's find the answer to every relationship on every single person, every single match on every single testing company. And what they're finding is that they have a match that neither of their parents have. So they tested themselves and both of their parents and they're finding someone that's on their match list that isn't on their parents' match list. And Rightly so. This is raising some questions. How is this even possible? If we get all of our DNA from our parents, how can we be sharing DNA with someone that our parents aren't sharing with? So you'll definitely want to head over for the article and and see my explanation about something called phasing, which is kind of a genetic term for the way that our companies divvy up what DNA you got from your mom and what you got from your dad. Because when you take the test, it basically dumps all of your DNA into the system and it doesn't tell the system what pieces you got from mom and what pieces you got from dad. So phasing is them trying to reconstruct that. And well, it's not easy. And sometimes they make mistakes. And when they do that, they might kind of reconstruct a piece of DNA that you share with someone that eh, isn't a real piece of DNA. But honestly, this should only happen at very small levels. And if you're digging into these super, super tiny matches, you know, that eight or nine centimorgan match, it doesn't affect your matches that are much closer. Interesting. And you've got a great illustration in the article um, showing what your DNA really looks like, (laughs) and what the testing company sees, and then what happens if there is a phasing error. And if you're like me, uh, those of you listening, and and you're very visual, this is only going to help, because it kind of gives you a real great picture of all this. Also, uh, somebody asked a question about surnames missing from matches. And I think I've heard you say before that we can't always expect to see the surnames that we see in our tree showing up in our matches. Absolutely. So there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them we've already talked about, just people haven't tested. But another reason could be that surname has changed 
right? And the surname mm-hmm. that you know and love as your surname isn't the one that was passed on to everybody else. And we certainly know that happens in our genealogy, spelling changes or, you know, all sorts of reasons people change their names. So all the same genealogy regions that we see um, still still hold true in the DNA as well. Well, if you have questions about your parents and your shared matches or questions about those missing surnames and also unexpected relatives that show up in your DNA matches, all of those get answered in this DNA Q&A with your DNA guide, Diane Southard. You'll find a link directly to the article in the show notes. And Diane, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for the answers to our questions. Thanks for having me on, Lisa. In the November 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine, we crisscrossed the country to bring you 75 of the best state genealogy websites. And from the great state of Ohio comes the OhioMemory.org website. And here to tell us more about it is their digital services manager, Jenny Solomon. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us, you know, because so many of our ancestors, I think at some point passed through Ohio. And mm-hmm. of course that makes the Ohio Memory uh, website just a really important resource for many, many people. So tell us first and foremost, who is behind, who is uh, Ohio Memory? Um, Ohio Memory is the collaborative digital library program of the Ohio History Connection and the State Library of Ohio. It was actually established in 2000. So we're celebrating 20 years this year. So it's Nice to get an award in a year that was already exciting and significant for us. Um, Initially, it was established as a bicentennial project. They wanted a way to capture some of Ohio's history. Ohio turned 200, or Ohio, the Ohio we know today turned 200 in 2003. Um, So they wanted to spend some time seeing how we could um, capture Ohio's history and share it more broadly. So that's how it started. We Basically, we uh, worked with institutions around the state to, um, they picked some of their favorite items in their collections. We helped them digitize them and we put them online. They're still there today in the Ohio Memory Collection on Ohio Memory, which is a little bit confusing, but that's how it started. It was just a online scrapbook was the vision. And then uh, we got some grant funding through a couple of different state organizations to support that. And it was so successful that we continue to do work on the project um, after that initial um, round of funding with a little bit more funding from some other um, folks, and then we were able to expand it even further. Oh, um, right. So initial submission, we had about 260 institutions contribute over 13,000 different items. Wow. Now, you mentioned the institutions that are involved. Um, am I correct that this is primarily library-driven? Yes, it's mostly libraries, but we certainly have contributions from all different types of organizations. So we have a lot of historical societies who participate. Um, Public libraries are probably our biggest participant, but we have university libraries. We have um, government institutions, special libraries, religious archives. Particularly if you're looking at the early um, phases of the program of the project, we have great diversity in the organization types that were represented. So we also have I think images from the Columbus Zoo, from botanical gardens, um, lots of different things represented there. 
Everything Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) So for the genealogist who will be coming to ohiomemory.org, they'll be excited to know what kit do you have and, and kind of how is it organized on the website? What should they be looking for? So um, in terms of types of materials, we have coverage of early prehistory through present day. So we have a lot of early statehood. We have representation of our American Indian predecessors. Um, we have uh, Civil War coverage, World War I, pretty much any big event you can think of in Ohio, any aspect of Ohio history, we have some sort of coverage on. All 88 counties are represented. Um, there are photographs, we have maps, we have drawings, paintings, manuscripts and journals. Um, we have archeological artifacts, natural history specimens, um, historical objects. We have oral histories, so both audio and video there. And we have lots of newspapers and we have lots of yearbooks and then through um, primarily the state library's contribution, we have a lot of like present day government records as well, because they are capturing some of the websites and currently produced materials as well as historical. So it's kind of more of what don't we have? And certainly there are things that we're missing. And every year we're working to add more. Our partners are, we are to add more to make sure that the story is as inclusive as it can be given the resources that we have available. And are these digital, you know, items or are we going to run into lots of, in a sense, what are catalog listings, but not necessarily available to view on the website? What's the nature of the items? Everything should be the full digital version of that item. So if we're looking at the newspaper, it's the full newspaper issue, keyword searchable, um, same thing with other printed materials. We do sometimes connect back to other catalog records, but if you're going to Ohio member, you're going to see the thing that you're looking for as close of a representation as we can get to the real thing using digital technology. Fantastic. And you said they're searchable. And of course, when you go to the homepage, uh, first and foremost, you do see the search box. So do you have any kind of tips and recommendations for us to get the most out of using that? Yes. So a big uh, tip for Ohio memory is that when you're doing a search, it's not only searching your keyword full text search, optical character recognition, OCR data, but also the metadata that every partner, including the Ohio History Connection, has added to the items to describe them so people can find them. Obviously, if you're looking at a photograph, there aren't going to be words you can search on, so we have to rely on our own descriptions of them to find those materials. So it's important to pick a keyword that's relevant to your search and also a keyword that is accurate to the time period you're searching as well, because depending on what the nature of the material is, you might have to look at things a little bit differently, particularly in newspapers. Words change over time, location names change over time. So that's something that we're trying to capture, or we are capturing history as it happened, but also trying to make sure that it's connected to the history of today so people can figure out those changes. When you're on the homepage, probably the biggest tip, if you're mostly looking for visual items, which I think is where a lot of people like to start because photographs are just so much, they're very exciting to see all the things that have been captured over the years. Um, On the main page, there's a little box that you can click that says exclude full text sources. So when you do your search um, and you do a search for dog or whatever, you'll just get pictures and photographs back and um, manuscript materials and not necessarily get bogged down with thousands of pages of newspaper results, which I personally love because I help with our newspaper digitization program the most. But I know other people can get 
a little overwhelmed by it. So that's one good tip to keep in mind is restricting your format to what you want to do right from the homepage. Oh, that's a great suggestion. You mentioned the newspapers. And of course, um, we think of Chronicling America at the Library of Congress as a place mm-hmm. to go to newspapers. Mm-hmm. Will we find the same collections or will we find some unique items? Um, Ohio Memory and Chronicling America collections do not overlap. So we have contributed quite a bit of content to Chronicling America over the years. And we've focused our Ohio Memory contributions on different titles and different time periods. So you'll find a lot deeper runs of papers on Ohio Memory. You'll find more recent papers. So we have some of our partners on the project have digitized their local newspapers up through 2019 and continue to add more content every year. And then we also have some really early significant newspapers for Ohio, like the Ohio State Journal, which was the paper of record for Ohio during the 19th century. So that we had that coverage from like 1830 through 1875. So a really important time period of Ohio's growth and the Civil War. And then we also worked with another library to digitize one of the earlier papers in Ohio, the Lebanon Western Star, which is in um, Southwest Ohio near Cincinnati and Kings Island. Uh, If anyone knows where that is, Uh, great amusement park outside there. But that also covers some really great early Ohio history from a more rural area in our state. So there is not any overlap, but they're all um, kind of part of the same story, building the same collection. And so I think. At last count, we have hit about a million pages between those two websites of digitized newspaper content. Well, that's exciting that there isn't the overlap and that there's that kind of a volume. And you mentioned another exciting collection I think that interests people a lot, which is yearbooks. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. So um, a lot of our partners, particularly those public libraries that we work with, have access to uh, yearbook collections through, you know, their partnerships with local schools. And that's just one of the things that public libraries seem to um, gravitate toward. And so they've worked, a lot of them have worked to digitize their materials and put them on Ohio memory. Some of them go back pretty early. Some of them are more recent. Generally, you're not going to get anything past kind of the mid 20 aughts just because of privacy issues for minors. But um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of good content from our Northwest Ohio partners and some Northeast Ohio partners with your books and then some kind of student history from Southwest Ohio as well with a couple of universities we have participating in the program down there. So I think there's your books and sort of like images of students that aren't necessarily your books, but just student pictures, that kind of thing. Oh, fantastic. Now, the big question, is it all free or are there some things that are, are pay subscription? The whole thing is free. Everything on Ohio Memory is free. We used to have one collection that was behind a paywall, but a couple years ago we opened that up. That was the Underground Railroad Wilbur H. Siebert collection, which has a lot of great information about Underground Railroad activities in Ohio and beyond. Um, And it's a really um, strong resource for people looking at research methods of the era where this was made and also kind of trying to dive into some of these stories of how um, the Underground Railroad actually operated. And some of these stories were like kind of first and second hand, but it's still very helpful to know. But we opened that up a couple years ago in celebration of Black History Month and just kept it open because we really want people to have access to those resources. So everything on Ohio Memory is free. Well, that's what we like to hear. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, what an amazing resource. Anything I didn't ask you about that you feel like our genealogy listening audience would be excited to hear about? Um, gosh, I mean, there's just so much in Ohio memory that I really just encourage people to just check it out and see what they can find. You may not find things specific to your family history, but sometimes we look at it as, as kind of um, coloring in those black and white photos with just getting more context around the community that your families were in and the world they were living in. So even if it's not a story about like your uncle who did something cool at this time, it could be you're like getting a greater understanding of what life was like back then. And recently we've put together some help resources on our website. We have a few videos and some just like an FAQ and some uh, like kind of search guides to help people really um, learn how to dive in because it is Google-like. But sometimes if you're really trying to do more complicated searches or trying to find something very specific, it's nice to have those tips on hand. So we're trying to make sure that information is available for our users so that they can do that as much as they can on their own. But also we're available via email to help too. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, it's a, it's a tremendous resource. We're very fortunate uh, that, that you guys have it. What have you got coming in the future? Is there an ongoing digitization process or other things in the works? Yeah. So the way the program works now is the Ohio History Connection in the State Library of Ohio continually digitize and add materials to Ohio memories. So every um, year, Ohio History Connection staff look at our um, collecting um, initiatives and our strategic goals and try to figure out what collections we have in our archives that we could digitize and expose to the public. So this year we focused on um, Harding, President Harding, since it's the uh, 100th anniversary of his election. So we have a brand new Warren G. Harding collection online that we're adding more and more content to regularly, kind of documenting his campaign and um, the other materials we already had online. We've been trying to add more material to represent underserved audiences. So we have a collection, the Gay Ohio History Initiative collection, which documents LGBTQ plus people from around Ohio. Some of those materials are materials we own and some of them are actually part of a community collection where people own them, they brought them to us, we scanned them, they kept them, but we put them online. They wanted to share their stories with us and with the other people out there in the world. So we continually add content and then our partners, um, we have about 40 active partners around the state who are also choosing from their own collections of materials to digitize. So Wood County up in Northwest Ohio has been celebrating their bicentennial, I believe this year or around now. Um, So they've been adding content. Mount St. Joseph University and the Sisters of Charity in the Cincinnati area have also been celebrating an anniversary um, within the last year or two. So they've been adding a lot of content documenting documenting the history of their communities and uh, um, their residents. And so it's just every, you know, every month new things are added. And uh, we get new partners every year and it's really exciting to see it expand and let people be able to choose what they want to represent their community. And we love being able to support that and give them an outlet to do that since digitization isn't cheap and it isn't super easy. So we try to make, we're trying to help lower those barriers as much as we can so that they can share their information and other people can get to it. That's great. And a final question, you know, many genealogists will be looking to kind of help supplement their own family stories. And I think that that's where a website like yours comes in so handy because it's going to have some of the the greater, wider context. Um, What are some of the parameters they should keep in mind around usage and copyright? Great question. 
So generally speaking, most of the materials on Ohio Memory are available for educational use um, without needing extra permission. So if you're a family historian and you are wanting to put a picture in a presentation for your family, you just want to keep it as part of your own research records, that's fine. There isn't any sort of monitoring for that. Um, And if you want to post something on Facebook or another social media account, we just ask that you link back to us so people who look at it know where they can find whatever you found and also find out where they can get more, just like it if they're interested in it. But anything beyond that, like if you had a formal publication, you would need to reach out to us um, to go through our rights and um, reproduction system and there are things that are in public domain on Ohio memory, but there are plenty of things that are not in public domain. It's really a mixed bag of uh, material. So it all requires a little bit of digging into, but I would say most cases for genealogists, there aren't a lot of barriers for them accessing the content and reusing it in a way that's standard for genealogists for kind of local presentations and sharing with family and that sort of thing. Fantastic. Well, it's a wonderful resource. It's ohiomemory.org. And you've been hearing from Jenny Solomon, who is the Digital Services Manager. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Are you looking for the perfect gift for a friend who shares your passion for genealogy? Or perhaps you'd like to pass on a few hints to your loved ones about items that you would love to see in your stocking this year. Well, look no further than the new article at FamilyTreeMagazine.com. It's called The Best Genealogy Gift Ideas That Go Beyond DNA Test. Here to help us fill in our list is Courtney Henderson, Digital Editor at Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Lisa. Hey, this is a great list. Oh my gosh, I'm already seeing things here I would like to have. And of course, certainly our friends would probably enjoy. Um, you got a lot of different categories here. And I'd love to start with uh, memory and preservation, because I think over the holidays, a lot of times people have a little extra time and they want to make some headway in that area. What kinds of gifts do you recommend? So um Along those lines, you're also with your family a lot, so I feel like there's a lot more opportunity to get some family stories and maybe get some photos. So I curated this list kind of with that in mind as well. Um, One thing that I put together was this great book um, by Denise May Levernick. She wrote How to Archive Family Keepsakes, and I thought that would be such a cool gift to combine with a DIY photo archiving kit from Gaylord Archival. They have tons of products um, for preservation of textiles and photos and all kinds of things. And, you know, I just feel like archival products aren't something you would just normally go out and buy for yourself because they can be kind of expensive. So um, using Denise's book, I did put together sort of this DIY photo archiving kit because I like the idea of just being able to almost do a semi-homemade gift without doing a craft project. So you could kind of buy these supplies, put the book in there, and, you know, poof, you've just got this really cool, unique gift that I feel like any family historian would just absolutely love to have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm looking at the list and you want all of it. You need all of it. So, Uh, That's wonderful. And it's really high quality. I know Gaylord has very high quality archival material. That's a wonderful idea. 
And um, I know that there's lots of different genealogy memberships, there's books, there's other resources. What were some of your favorite picks there? Well, I, the National Genealogical Society membership is always good. Um, that's just kind of a well-rounded membership. It comes with all sorts of benefits. I really like that one. Of course, our own genealogy forms collection, we have just tons of different forms for records, for recording family history, um, just all kinds of things that I, I find myself are just super helpful. And again, something, especially beginning genealogists may not know about or may not think about. It's just great to, it would be great to just be able to present those. And um, another really popular gift is always the unofficial guide to ancestry.com and the workbook. That book has been popular for a really long time. And it's great if you do have a new genealogist, get them an ancestry.com subscription and these books. They're just really invaluable and full of some really great information. Oh, yeah, that would be a great group. (laughs) They can get the most out of using the membership and the site. Now, I know a lot of people at this point have already done their DNA testing. But you have some uh, great kind of add-ons so that you can kind of keep in that DNA vein without doing more tests. What kinds of items did you come up with? Yeah, I really, when I curate this list, I, I started it last year, and I myself was having a hard time finding gifts or gift lists that weren't DNA tests. And I right. just feel like, yeah, we've all kind of been there and done that. Like, what's next? And just with a little bit of digging, I was able to uncover some really, really cool ideas. Um, A lot of people do already know about Celebrate DNA. They're great. They come to Roots Tech, and it's just uh, so many fun things, T-shirts and mugs all about with your uh, ethnicity estimates on them, and those are always fun. And uh, another product that I found was by a company called DNA11, and they've been around since 2005, and they will take your DNA and turn it into it's you know you get this fingerprint captured when you take your dna and they will take that and turn it into artwork so they'll actually put that dna fingerprint on canvas and it looks like modern art and it just is such a cool unique gift i just really really liked that one a lot oh that's a neat idea i I love anything that makes our passion for genealogy visual so people can kind of really see what we're into And that brings me to this next section. Now, you've got unique family tree chart gifts. I know the poster-sized family tree charts kind of caught my eye. I recently took a tiny little photograph and created this huge poster uh, of my husband's grandfather and a musical band he was in. And it's amazing how much attention it gets. And I can only imagine if we put our family tree on a poster size. Tell us about um, some of those products. So, yeah, those are very popular. Um, You know, we at Family Tree, you can buy in our shop just the little framed uh, watercolor ones, which are great. But if you kind of want to make a big statement like you're talking about, several companies offer this service. And my canvas has partnered with Ancestry, and you can actually take your Ancestry Family Tree and send it to my canvas, and they will print it out on this poster size that you can frame it. It's gorgeous. There are other um, companies that do that as well. And I just think that is such a beautiful way to sort of incorporate, like you were talking about your family history, just you can see it every day and it sparks conversation. I just think that's such a great idea. And there's sort of along those same lines, I did find this really neat metal family tree. So it's 
a little more understated. It's not a big poster. It's just this almost a tree sculpture that you can hang on a wall or you can, uh, they have a stand you can put it on. And it comes with these frames hanging from ribbons. And so I just thought it was so beautiful to sort of like share family photos, but also do a tree out of them. I just really, really like that one as well. Oh, yeah. Art in your house. Love it. Now, we're recording in late October of 2020. And of course, right now, the people aren't doing a whole lot of travel. But travel is something that I think everybody's looking forward to getting back into. And you had some ideas around kind of heritage trips, what you find there. Yes. I'm trying to stay positive, hoping we can get back to travel. I love to travel. And I know that heritage tourism is so popular and people just love to go back and see where their ancestors lived or grew up. And so there are several companies. The big one, of course, is Go Ahead Tours. They partner with Ancestry, and that is definitely a bucket list gift. I mean, they provide you with a test if you need one. They'll have a pro genealogist with you to kind of walk you through as you travel kinds of different uh, points of interest or how it relates specifically to your family story. It's amazing. They've got German, Irish, uh, Italian trips, I think, planned. They did have a Scotland one last year. I didn't see that one this year, but um, they may decide to add that one back in. And then a couple of other smaller companies that I thought still just provided some really cool services was Classic Journeys Heritage Travel. And they actually provide a service where you can send them your DNA results and they will return information about those regions to you. And I just thought that that was such a cool service. I hadn't seen that in uh, any other travel agencies. And then last, Family Tree Tours. Uh, this is actually owned by a genealogist. So she focuses mostly on German-speaking countries, but she does provide trips for you, again, to trace your ancestry back in the old country. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, how fun. Now, of course, last but not least are the kids. We'd love to get the kids interested in genealogy. Uh, what did you find for children? Well, I have kids, so I really enjoyed researching this part of it. One I found was this Mindware Unboard Activities. The first one I found was this time capsule kit, and it comes with all kinds of little supplies, but it also comes with a field guide that allows them to record their interests, activities, what their school's like, what their town's like. And it's just almost like a gift to their future selves. They can give questionnaires to family members and record what their life is like and then open it later. I thought that one was really fun. The second one, super cool. This company was founded by scientists and moms, and they're really passionate about promoting women in science. And they've put together this kit called DNA and traits from codes to creatures. And so it sort of introduces the concepts of genetics, but in sort of a fun way that's great for kids. I did also find actually several board games. I was sort of surprised <laughs> at the number of genealogy board games. I just pulled two that really caught my attention. One is Six Generations. And this was interesting. It's almost like a standard card deck. But instead, it's broken up into six different generations. The artwork reflects the generation for that time period. And they have a game you can play that's a standard game with the set, but then they also provided lots of game variations on their site for different ways to incorporate. Essentially, you're building a family tree, and that is recommended for ages six and up. 
And then Pando is super cool. That was a Kickstarter back in 2017. And it's, marketed as a living room game that a family plays together. So siblings are competing for points about who knows more about mom or dad. The parents take turn asking questions of the kids and whoever gets the answer right gets the point. So some of the questions might be, how old was I when I got my first computer or name a hairstyle that was not great on me and or something like that. So (laughs) anyway, it just sounds like so much fun. I can't wait to get that one. Oh, how fun. Okay, well, for those of you listening, if you'd like to get Courtney's complete list, head to the show notes for this episode, you will find a link to her article, The Best Genealogy Gift Ideas That Go Beyond DNA Tests. And I also understand that Andrew Cook, the editor of Family Tree Magazine also has an article coming out in the November December issue called Making a List. And that should be very helpful as well. Uh, Always great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this November 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Be sure and check out the show notes for this episode. They are available for you over at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. And there you're going to find links to everything we talked about. The wonderful Ohio Memory website, uh, Courtney's Gift Giving Guide, Diane's Answers to Your DNA Questions, and of course, the latest issues of the magazine. And if you're listening to this show through a podcast app like Apple or Google Podcasts, Will you do us a big favor? Give us a five-star rating and maybe a quick little note to other genealogists about why they would enjoy listening to the show. We appreciate your help in spreading the word about the show and helping other people discover the joys of learning more about their family history. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can learn more about me over at genealogygems.com. And of course, I have my Genealogy Gems podcast also in your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.